You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back and we have another really good podcast today. Today we have on Brian Broderick. He is the owner of Day 6 Specialized Gear. They make broadheads and arrows and uh, this is a really cool episode, man. Uh, We get into a conversation about a whole bunch of different things, uh, life passion for hunting um him growing up in alabama and just slaying deer with a bow for several years um journeys out west you know how he makes his life of basically a traveling bow hunter work with his wife and children and uh it's just a really good episode man i don't want to i'm just going to keep this intro really short and let you know that you need to listen to it and listen to the whole thing I definitely want to get him on again because we just scratched the surface. This is an iceberg. This dude's an iceberg, right? There's so much I want to talk to him about, and uh, we'll get to the hunting strategy side of things on a couple of these episodes, but a really good episode. Hopefully, you guys enjoy it. Today's podcast commercial is Vortex Optics. Now, you've heard me talk about Vortex a hundred times here, and... uh, nothing's changed since the last time I've talked about them. They're still a badass company with badass, badass optics. Um, they have an awesome VIP warranty, which means that if you break your optics, you send it back to them, they fix it and send it back to you and there's no charge, right? It's free. So, uh, that's, uh, that's a win-win. Plus I know the guys that work there, uh, some of the guys that work there and, uh, they're just really good people. And look for a lot of things coming out of Vortex that are going to not only help the hunting community, but help establish the hunting community for a longer period of time. Get some maybe new people interested in hunting, Uh, maybe uh, people who maybe have put their bows or their guns on the shelf getting those people back activated out into the outdoors. So a lot of cool things coming from that point of view too. So vortexoptics.com, go check them out. Um, Love their stuff. So other than that, I've already 
talked longer than I probably should have. Let's get into today's Hunter Profile podcast with Brian Broderick. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Brian Broadwick. Brian, how we doing, man? Good, how about you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, so you've been on the Hunting Gear podcast before when we talked about uh, arrows because you are the owner of Day 6 Gear. Uh, we talked about arrows and, and broadheads and, and a whole um, slew of things uh, I guess revolving around the arrow so to all the listeners out there if you want to listen to a really awesome podcast about building arrows and arrow flight uh, go listen to that we're going to have him on the hunting gear podcast uh, in a couple months and we're going to have a a similar discussion but uh, today's just kind of a bs session shoot from the hip type episode like we always do around uh, kind of a hunter profile thing so how has your season gone thus far uh it's it's uh it's been a unique one for me for sure i uh had a, a back injury back in august and i uh, had some pretty bad nerve damage uh and so i've been kind of dragging my left side around uh this year but i still tried to elk hunt uh that was probably foolish but uh we managed to get into quite a few bulls we just stick bow hunting we couldn't close it and then uh killed a nice uh nice deer uh at home in alabama uh during bow season uh you know a 140 you know ish deer which is good for down here and then uh spent about two weeks in oklahoma uh and hunted out there and pursued a really big deer for a while and then watched him get shot out in front of us with a rifle when rifle season opened and uh ended up killing a you know mid-150s deer uh, so I, I feel like it's been a, a, a salvage season of something that could have been a whole lot worse, you know? Yeah. Could have, you know, could have been where I couldn't get around at all. Right. So what happened to your back? Well, I, I back in 2013, I actually had a building collapse on me. Oh, damn. Um, and they had to kind of dig me out of the thing and had some pretty extensive, uh, you know, damage. And so, uh, you know, couldn't walk for about four or five months, had to start walking again, and you know, that kind of injury. And then I feel like the, the, this recent thing was a residual, uh, from that, but I just pushed it too hard and, you know, just kind of, I don't know, re-injured myself, if you will. Yeah. And, uh, whatever came loose went in and, you know, worked on the nerves pretty bad. So, so it, I got really lucky because we're, I'm probably 50%, uh, feeling back now which you know was i was quite concerned that i would have no recovery on it so gotcha. we're feeling pretty good about where it's at so how long did that you know that event when that building fell on you how long uh-huh. did that hinder your bow hunting uh life i guess like th- was 13 out was 14 out no um believe it or not um uh so the, the injury was in February, and uh, I'd say by around July and August, I was starting you know the physical, the pretty heavy physical therapy stuff. Um, so all my September October hunts were out. Uh, but one of my really good friends, uh, he, um, you know, he just he he just knew that I was going to be miserable if we didn't if I didn't do something. So I was turning forty uh, while I was in the hospital bed. So 
he called my wife and said, Hey, do you think he can get around if, you know, if we went to Africa where we could, you know, to do waterhole hunting and all that. And, and she said, absolutely. I've been trying to think about, you know, what to do to get him, you know, get his spirits back. And it's just been miserable for him. And so in September, the first September, we went to Africa and uh, I hobbled around over there, you know, about eight months after, after the injury so, or, or, or nine months maybe, but, uh, so I'm not too smart, but when it comes to hunting, I'll take some chances, you know? Yeah. So, so when, when, when a scenario like that happens, like I've never been so injured that I, I knew that it might affect my bow hunting season. You know, I, I've, right. uh, I've twisted an ankle really bad one year and, um, it just slowed me down a lot of, you know, walking around the, the whitetail woods, but never really affected anything out West or, you know, it, it just slowed me down when, when that happened and with it being such a huge passion, you know, hunting being such a huge passion of yours, was that one of the first things that popped into your mind when you were in pain? Like, man, I hope I can make it out to deer hunt. That, you know, that, 100 percent that that i'm embarrassed to say that 100 percent that's what it was uh when i was lying there waiting on these guys to get me out i was thinking you know i'm not going to be elk hunting in september i'm not going to be you know i'm not going to be mule deer hunting in october and i'm not going to be in the midwest in november and i did get to do my midwest hunting but all my western stuff i just physically couldn't do yeah um and then for 14 so 2013, 2014 are the only two years that I did not elk hunt since yeah. 1991. So um, it was it was tough for me. Yeah, uh, I didn't hunt out west at all, but I had so much atrophy in my my legs from the injury as well um, that it took a while to build muscle and everything back. And I feel like I when I turned 40 in that hospital bed that I went from like 39 to 80. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I literally was in the best shape I think I'd probably ever been in. Yeah. And I felt like I literally went from 39 to 80 with that injury. And, you know, now you got creaks and pops and aches and pains and, yep. you know, limits to what you can do. But I've, I've figured out a way, you know, to work around it. And it's not really hindered me, you know, again, until this year when we, you know, injured my lower back. But, you know, I, I, I look at a lot of guys that have 10 times worse challenges, physical challenges than myself. And I just really don't, don't really play much of a pity party because, you know, I'm still in way better shape than a lot of guys, unfortunately. So, yeah. um, you know, I just, I don't really dwell on it much. And uh, I felt very fortunate to be, you know, successful this year. I mean, heck, I was, uh, you know, a week and a half ago, I was out in, you know, the desert out in Arizona, you know, mule deer hunting, you know, over the counter, you know, public land. Yeah. And so it could be a lot worse. That's a fact. Uh, That's a fact. When, but unfortunately, the <laughs> the hunting has always consumed me to a point to where it's really the only thing I think about. And, you know, it's the only reason I've ever worked is just to be able to pay to go do the things I wanted to do hunting wise. So, yeah. Um, definitely, um, have had my priorities out of whack for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, which, you know, when, when someone says, uh, uh, yeah, a building fell on me, it could obviously have been a lot worse, but then when you have a passion such as hunting, 
who knows if you didn't have hunting in your life and that building still fell on you if you would have some kind of drive to rehab and get up and get moving so that you you could go out and hunt well i damn sure wouldn't have pushed as hard as i you know did if i was a golfer right right so, i mean it was it was 100 percent. you know the rehab was all about let's go hunting so yeah. uh but man i listen i pretty much owe everything i have and have done um to hunting because i feel like it's just kept me grounded uh to a point to where um you know it would constantly give me that dose of humility that i need based on my personality so um hunting is always going to make you humble and bow hunting is just the you know the phd course in that that's just making you even more humble so that's a fact it's definitely you know kept me where i needed to be and kept my you know everything in perspective if you will uh and you know I've, i've you know treated it i've treated you know hunting and being outside you know like my church so that's you know that's just kind of where i recharge and you know uh, Focus. It just, I don't know. I can't explain. It just makes me a, a more whole person, you know? Yeah. And I think this is, I don't know. I don't know about you, but you brought, you brought this up and now I gotta, I gotta share my point of view on it because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a, I, I might be spiritual, but I'm not a religious man per se. Right. And like you said, going outside makes me whole. And there is something about nature that, and being outside, whether it's hunting or learning lessons through nature or through hunting, that, uh, dude, I, I treat I treat nature and hunting like my church as well. And it is, I know it's, uh, it's it to some people it might not be the same, but to me it 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 has the same weight, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, it does, and you know, and and. I, I am a religious person, um, and always I just my upbringing. Uh, it's just always been a big part of my life, and you know, my my wife's family and my family, you know, literally physically built and started a church in our hometown, and um, you know, my wife was my childhood sweetheart. I've known her since first grade. It's the only, you know only girl I've ever had and, you know, had a relationship with and, and only one I've ever wanted. So we've, you know, we've, you know, followed, you know, a, a life of, of faith. I am by far <laughs> a perfect person. I have a lot of imperfections. Um, but, you know, that's just the way we've always lived our lives. But as we got older and started to understand the, the real part of life, we both realize that Sundays in church, sometimes, uh, unfortunately, we, we, we may be surrounded by more um, uh, hypocrites and, and <laughs> maybe a, a bad element than, than we would if we were just out on our own, you yep. know, in nature. So, you know, that was a really hard decision for us, you know, to, to cut back on that and, and feel okay you know, not being in church just by the way we were raised, you know, during hunting season and things like that. And, and man, we made that decision and came to grips with it uh, and were at peace with it. I mean, it just, it's, it's, I feel like my whole life changed, you know, and, 
And it's funny because my son is actually in his, um, starting his junior year um, in Christian ministry, uh, which I never would have dreamed. Uh, but, you know, that's where he's, you know, chosen to, to you know, take his life. And so, uh, and he, he doesn't judge his mom and dad at all, you know, based on us not being in church every Sunday because of the way we live and the example we set. So, and, and he understands, I mean, he's a hunter too. And, you know, there's, I don't think there's any difference between, you know, sitting in the middle of God's creation on Sunday versus sitting in a church. Uh, so, cause I, in my opinion, you're both, you're at both times you're surrounded by a lot of wild animals. So, um, (laughs) I, I just, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it certainly, uh, kept my life together and kept me focused on, you know, the right things and, and for everybody, you know, you don't have to be religious or even spiritual per se to, to get that same feeling. I mean, there's a lot of guys that don't know why it completes them, but being outside and bow hunting and, you know, having that, you know, intimate interaction and challenge with, you know, with an animal is that that's what's, you know, fulfilling their soul. I just can't put it into words, you know. All right. So where did you grow up at? Uh, I grew up in uh, Alabama um, and uh, started hunting with my grandfather uh, when I was, oh gosh, I think five or six was the first time my parents and my grandmother would let it let me go yeah um he had two boys and they showed no interest in it so when i came along i came along pretty early about 10 years behind his youngest and so he kind of commandeered me and said all right this one's mine i'm doing what i want with this one (laughs) and so (laughs) i was pretty much his shadow you know um and 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 it's, it's so funny because looking back upon you know his life and, and our experiences together, you know, he had to be one of the like top five worst hunters I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, he was so bad at it. <laughs> oh, mean, that's funny. Just so bad at it. And he just loved it so much. But, you know, there's a lot of guys that love to hunt and then there's hunters and there's a distinct difference between the two. And fortunately for me, um, it just came natural. Yeah. So, um, it is, uh, <laughs> but it was, it was a, a very fun experience, uh, growing up with him and, and it was always, always a lot of folly and always incredible stories, near death experiences. And, you know, anytime chainsaws came out or tree stands were going up, I mean, it was, you were taking your life in your own hands if you were anywhere near him. So, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun for sure. So, but, um, so it was your How grandpa. I got to be a, it was my grandfather that yeah. kind of paved the way for you and helped build that foundation as a as a hunter. Oh man, I mean, we hunted every weekend, and and um, but we would always come back uh, for church on Sundays, uh, and it always just you know we basically just hunted on Saturday, and it just drove me nuts, you know, to get up Sunday morning and there's frost on the ground and get in the truck and drive back to town. I was just oh my gosh, I was dying. Um, but you know, hunt season would, would wrap up and we'd clean everything up and put all the, the gear up and clean the guns and he'd get the boat out and, you know, we would crappie fish basically every weekend until hunt season started again. I mean, it was just, that was my life. So, um, and, and fortunately, uh, when I was about 10 or 11, 
uh, we had a, a youth leader at our church who was a, I say he was in his mid forties, single, um, and he, all he did was hunt and fish. I mean, he, his whole life was just consumed with it. He had no interest in anything else. And he was one of the most amazing outdoorsmen that I've ever been exposed to. And, you know, he was a trapper for the state and, um, you know, just a, a very advanced bow hunter, you know, back in the you know early 80s. And so having that exposure early on to a, a gentleman like that and having that, you know, you, you kind of get to skip elementary school and you got to get to start your bow hunting career maybe in middle school. Yeah. Um, you have a very short elementary school uh, experience and uh, he got me into that. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, I shot my first deer with a bow at 12 and I, I bet you I haven't, I bet you I have not killed 10 bucks with a bow since then. I mean, it's just been totally consuming. Um, it's the first time I ever got one in my hand and, uh, you know, we, I would ride my bicycle to Kmart and buy arrows one at a time. Um, East, the green Easton game getters, uh, that's all I could afford. But, um, and they were full length because we no one had a saw and there wasn't a saw at Kmart. So, uh, and I want to say, I was trying to remember the other night what the broadheads were that were there. I remember they had the bare razor heads, but they also had, I want to say it was either a, a satellite or like a Savora or something like, I can't remember, but those were the only two broadheads to choose from. And that's, that's what I shot. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the worst tuned bow on the planet back then, buddy. it was bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I can remember when I first, uh, when I first had, you know, my archery equipment, I got a bale of hay for my grandpa and at 10 yards out of maybe the 10 arrows that I, none of the arrows were the same. None of the arrows were the same length, the same weight, different broadheads and tips on all of them. And I probably hit five out of, you know, at 10 yards, I hit five arrows in that bale of hay. And I thought I'm, I'm ready. I am ready to get out there and start slaying deer. And, and so, but it's cool because for you, and I hear this story a lot when, when you, when you have someone, uh, a mentor of sorts who is advanced and takes the opportunity to bring someone in, it really shortens that person's, you know, education on bow hunting or hunting in general or trapping or whatever, whatever it is down a lot. And that person is going to find success early on in their career. And you see that a, a lot of places. If you if you go and you ask, you know, there, there's two types of hunters uh, in this category. Like there's the me's, the Dan Johnsons, who didn't really have a mentor. I learned everything on my own. It took me a long time to get to the point where I'm starting to find success every year. Okay. Then there's the other guys who have a really awesome mentor. That mentor helps them along with their mistakes uh, and, and shortens that curve, and they find success early on in their career. And I think both are awesome because both come to the same ending, and that is another passionate hunter. Yeah, and, you know, there's there's another distinct advantage that, that I was blessed with is just simply my geographical location. So being born in Alabama with a four month season, you can kill a deer a day. Um, some years we could kill a buck and a doe a day for four months. So, you know, it was a very game rich target rich environment. And you, you learn by skinning your knees. 
Yeah. And the good hunters take good lessons away from the failures and then they don't repeat them. They, they implement those lessons into success. Well, when you're in an area like where I grew up, you know, in rural Alabama and you're related to a bunch of people and everybody's got land and this is before everybody was leasing up ground and you could go buy a timber company permit for $5 and hunt any property they owned in the state. Um, you know, it was just limitless hunting. And so, you know, the opportunities to engage with deer, uh, and fail, you know, there was 20, 30 fold what most other, you know, people were experiencing in other parts of the country. So, you know, having that advanced amount of, uh, encounters, I mean, it just, it just shortens the curve immensely because you're like, okay, well, you know, I had, you know, 20 shots at deer with, you know, with a bow this year and I killed two. I got to get that. I got to get those numbers up. (laughs) (laughs) So so anyway, I mean, but you know, as you progress, you know, the next year you're like, I got, you know, 20 opportunities and I killed 10. And then the next year, as you're learning more, now I'm getting 40 opportunities and you're killing 20. And it just, it just becomes this crazy, you know, accelerated path to becoming efficient um, and, um, and lethal with a bow. And then you start to also understand, golly, this setup's just not really working. I mean, what I was using before, I'm punching through, and the arrows are always on the other side. This one's not. What's different? And then you start dissecting what you're using. And But if you don't have a sample size to do that, it's just it just takes too long, you know? Um, so yeah. I was super fortunate. Yeah. There's no question about that. I mean, it's it's just pure luck about where you're, where you're born. And, and then you're, you got to get lucky and have someone in your life that can, you know, get you to that next level quicker. Yeah. And yeah. that's where I was at. And it, the other thing, Dan, I'm telling you, trapping and learning to trap as far as woodsmanship and understanding how animals and wildlife flows through country. Um, man, that was, I'd say that was as big as anything for sure. When you start getting intimate and with any kind of wildlife and start trying to figure out how to get them in a trap, it's, it's a different game because you're not, you're not dealing with a 30, 40 yard circle anymore. You're dealing with a three or four inch circle. And that's what people don't understand. I mean, it's, it's, it's as as close contact as you can get with, you know, capturing game in, in some shape, form or fashion. So that was, that was big for me as well. So you're, what you're saying is that trapping uh, and, and, and being a trapper helped you be also be a more successful whitetail hunter because you understood how animal animals use terrain and buildings and vegetation to move through the countryside. Absolutely. And not just, not just deer. I mean, everything, you know, I mean, it was, you know, I, I started elk hunting, you know, the, the fall after I graduated high school, um, you know, my first, my first elk hunt was in 1991, you know, in New Mexico in the back of my truck. And then shortly thereafter from 93 on, I was literally out there the entire month of September, some of October hunting two or three States back to back, you know? 
So, I mean, all of that translates into any kind of game, whether it's Western, whitetails, whatever. Uh, not really turkeys. You know, the, those, those things are possessed by Satan, but uh, everything <laughs> else kind of follows the same pattern, you know. Yeah. All right. So, so for the most part, high school, um, I mean, did you, did you ever take time off to like play sports? Because I got into hunting when I was about, oh, 12, 13 years old. Then I got into sports and high school, other high school activities, hunting kind of took a back seat. And then I went to college, still kind of took a back seat. I, I hunted every once in a while. And then 2006 and when I got right back into it and cannonballed back into it and I haven't looked back since. So did you ever have a moment in your life or in, in your early years where you took a hiatus or anything like that because of other activities? Never, 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 never. No, but, but you know, the difference is, is that as a family, we were very active, but it, we were very athletic and all involved in sports and, you know, through, through junior high, middle school, all the way up to there, you know, I, I played, you know, baseball, football, and boxed. Um, but, you know, as you get into middle school and, you know, junior high, we call it down here, middle school, other, other places, but, you know, the games are during the week, you know, they're either Thursday night or Friday night. And then high school football, you know, that was, you know, always Friday nights. It was, you know, you always had your weekend available. Um, and, so I played football, you know, all the way up through my 10th grade year. And then, you know, it was a, it was one of those things to where you got to start deciding, are you going to be a multi-sport? Or are you going to focus? And my focus was always baseball. The problem I ran into, ran into in high school is I got my driver's license. So now I wanted to hunt every day and uh, I wanted to figure out how to skip out of school. And, go hunt every day. <laughs> and, and it wasn't a problem until we, you know, got a, a, our group of boys that were coming through the school, we had all been on very successful other, you know, spring ball teams and travel teams and all. And so they really felt like we had an opportunity to be, you know, state champions and that, those kind of things. But for whatever reason, coaches and people obsess over. But so they started this fall workout program. And, you know, I pretty much turned in my bag uh, then. But my coach, uh, he loved to hunt <laughs> and he hunted with us at our property. So he had a kind of a double-edged sword there. He's like, okay, I'm losing my third baseman and my utility guy and my number three hitter, but I'm also losing my, my hunting place. So you know where his priorities were. It was the hunting <laughs> place. So he came to me and said, listen, we're, we're going to say you're not playing, that you've left the team. And then as soon as hunting season's over in January, you're going to come back and beg for forgiveness and the team's going to let you back and then you're going to play. And then we'll do the same thing again. So for two years, you know, it was just this folly of me saying, oh, I'm not playing. And I was leaving every day, you know, after fourth period, um, every single afternoon. And then we'd start playing baseball in the fall. I actually, believe it or not, it's going to sound funny, but my family was also big tennis players. Um, and, I actually played on the tennis team and the baseball team. Nice. And, but I could only go to tennis matches when we didn't have a game. It didn't uh, conflict with that. So uh, it was a pretty busy schedule um, when I was in high school. And then my senior year, it was I could barely stay focused on anything but hunting. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 I'm not embarrassed to say this because it's just the way it was. 
uh, back then, and and things have changed now. But my senior year in high school, I, I shot 25 uh, rack bucks with my bow. And, um, I mean, you talk about, now, keep in mind, a lot of basket, basket rack bucks. But, you know, back then the mindset was not management and quality and, you know, age, class. I mean, it just was never heard of. It, yeah. Know? So it was, you know, and we didn't shoot does. They're just stacking I mean, them. Crazy. That's like twenty buck, over twenty bucks in one season. That's crazy. Yeah, you realize that's over a hundred and twenty something days. Yeah, it's four months. Yeah, I, so, I don't, I, I don't, I don't care. I, that's still like a ton of deer to kill. In my, you know, I've never met anybody else. Uh, you're the first person I know of who's killed twenty deer in one year, right? Well, I can tell you this: there's a bunch of a bunch of guys my age that live on the road where I'm standing right now. Uh, and they were a lot better than me and they killed a lot more than I did. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just part of life down here, but you got, you got to realize there was no competition for property to speak of. Um, everybody had places to hunt and relatives. There was not a lot of competition. That was the tail end of our agriculture. Um, uh, industry in our in our area that we still had you know soybeans and cotton and corn and sweet potatoes and all of that being farmed now it's all pine trees so it was a different place um and you had you know landowners that were relying on their harvest you know for their cash crop they wanted knuckleheads like me skulking around on the tree lines with you know old summit climbing tree stands or old baker stands and running arrows in the deer yeah you know, they were all screaming at us, you know, you got to shoot some does. Because um, back then we could shoot, uh, I think we had two weeks uh, in the season that we could shoot does and the rest of it was bucks. And then somewhere in the 90s, it changed to a buck and a doe a day. It's like they changed their mind overnight. Yeah. So you could, for a long stretch there, you could shoot a buck or a doe a day or a buck and a doe a day. But um, it wasn't really hard. I mean, if you're moving from place to place and you've got, deer pouring into agriculture fields in the afternoons and you're going every single afternoon yeah and you have you know unlimited places to choose from it it wasn't that hard um you know uh so i I mean i kind of want to put it in perspective because i don't want it want it to sound like it was this huge accomplishment it just it was just part of life yeah I mean, that makes sense. That makes really good sense. Now, through this whole, you know, through your whole younger years, um, what did your parents have to say to you? Uh, like, if my kids were gone, I know, and I don't have any kids who are able to leave home by themselves. They're not at that age yet. But um, if they were going out and hunting every day after school. I mean, every day. And that's what they were doing. I guess I I look at it now and I say, I wouldn't have a problem with it as long as it did not interfere with any type of their education. Like if their grades were failing, I would have to use, you know, I'd have to be that asshole dad and and take something away from them. And that would be the vehicle or, or it would be the ability to hunt or, or whatever that, that was. Did you ever run into problems like that? Not really. Um, I got, you know, some things you get blessed with and you super lucky. And, um, you know, I never had to take a book home. It just, it was never a challenge. You know, it was one of those things that just came easy. 
and it always frustrated my wife. You know, she was my girlfriend back then because she had to work so hard to make like B's and C's. And I, you know, never had to do really anything to make A's. And, and I never gave my parents um, a reason to restrict me from anything. So um, my entire, you know, life at home, I, would, I was put on restriction one time when I was 15 years old because I'd already bought a truck and fixed it up and rebuilt it while I was 15. So when I turned 16, I'd be ready to go. Well, I couldn't stand it, and, you know, cold fronts coming in. And so my parents weren't going to be home till late. So I just took the truck and went hunting, you know, without a license. <laughs> um, and so that was the only time I was on restriction. And they, I mean, it didn't even stick for just a few days. And, but I never really gave them any, any reason to, provide any kind of restrictions or, or, or curfews or barriers for me. I, I never, I didn't ever even touch alcohol until I was probably 25 or 26 years old and still not a big drinker at all. Um, but it just never was part of my life. And so my parents never, like I never had a curfew and my parents never like worried where I was or what I was doing. I could come in at two o'clock or three o'clock or whenever. And I was the guy that everybody called when they were, stuck out in the mud at one o'clock in the morning or, you know, whatever. I was the guy that they would call to come help because they knew they could call my house. There were no cell phones. Of course, my parents wouldn't get mad and say, Hey, can you come help us? And I'd go pull somebody out or help them out of a bind or whatever. Um, and my parents were those, those parents that people would call if they were scared of their parents. <laughs> so my, you know, my dad went and got a lot of guys out of trouble, you know? And so, when you don't give them a reason to take anything away, it's really not a, not an issue, but yeah, my parents had no idea where I was every afternoon until I came home, <laughs> you know, at seven or eight o'clock, yeah. you know, after dark. Yeah. So, you know, when I would leave school, I may drive 50, 60 miles Northwest East, you know, who knows I was going to a different piece of property or going with somebody else or they never had an idea where I was. Yeah. Um, and then I would, but they trusted and, you and that's the most important thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and I, I'm the exact same way with my oldest son. Uh, we've never placed any kind of restriction on him, no curfew, nothing. I mean, he's never given us a reason, uh, you know, to implement anything like that. Yeah. So, um, he's just made good, made good decisions and, I think my parents are smart enough to know, which I hope a lot of parents now really understand that, especially if they're outdoorsmen, is that if your kids are, are hunting and fishing and doing things like that, they're just not getting into mischief. Yeah. Yeah. I, they're just not. I agree. They're just, they have a different perspective on things. Yeah. So, That's a fact. I don't know. That, like I said, it's, it's definitely saved me and provided me for a great life because it's just kept everything in check and kept me out of trouble. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier on, like, 1991 was kind of a big year for you because it uh, it was the first year you ever went out west, correct? Correct. Okay, so that is the first year. All right. So my question then is, you know, a lot of guys are just happy with hunting whitetails all the time, every time, and they they don't have any ambition to go west. What was it about the west being, you know, an Alabama boy? Uh, that really kind of pulled you in that direction? I, I don't know. I, I think it was 
you know, I consumed any type of literature or any type of publication that had anything to do with hunting. I, you know, I just ate that up. Um, and then, you know, we would go skiing every now and then. And normally we would go, you know, like up to North Carolina or Virginia or somewhere like that. We, you know, close to home where we could drive. But I remember the first year we went out west um, and we went to Colorado skiing. It was, that was it. I was, I was done. You know, you see a herd of elk cross the road and, you know, and golly, the, the things I was reading back then, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, seeing all these things like Paul Schaefer did and, um, um, and some other, you know, other famous like bow hunters and I'm watching these things that they're doing and I'm like, I, I I've got to do it. And, and the other part of it is, is that, you know, when I, my senior year in high school or maybe before my senior year, like at the end of my junior, I started working at a hunting and fishing store and, um, and working in the archery department there. And then I ended up, you know, running it while I was kind of going through college and all. And when you're in that, you start seeing, like, you start interacting with people like Alpine Archery. Like, we carried Alpine Archery where they were in, I believe, Idaho or Idaho. Or you, they were in Idaho. Um, so you start interacting with people out west and having discussions with them. And they're only hunting elk and mule deer, and you're only hunting whitetail and hogs. And so I'm wanting to hunt elk, elk and mule deer, and they're wanting to come hunt whitetails and hogs. So, you know, you, the, I guess working in that store certainly exposed me to a lot. And uh, I just made made up my mind I was going to do it. And, um, uh, again, the gentleman at the church that had helped me, he had spent some time in New Mexico, uh, I want to say maybe in the military, um, and he would go out there from time to time, and he helped me. And you know, here's who you call to get your topo maps, or what not call, but you would actually write a check and snail mail in your your form where you could check which you know which uh, topo maps you wanted, and then get your Forest Service maps and all that. And you know, there was no internet, there was no Google Earth, there was no GPS, there were no rangefinders. I mean, the first time I went to New Mexico in '91, I missed three just gagger bulls um i miss more than that but three of them were big ones so (laughs) because you know you're standing in this wide open country where you've grown up in these thickets in the south and there's a you know 800 pound animal standing there in the wide open and just the the you know the, the fact of his size and then there's no you know vegetation between you you're just going oh gosh he's 30 yards and he's 50 yeah. yeah, I was misjudging yardage by, you know, 20 yards. Yeah. And so when I came back, there was no, there was nothing, you know, on my to-do list other than learn to judge yardage. And that's been probably one of the biggest skill sets that's helped me be really successful uh, is actually hunting back then and learning how to judge yardage and not need, I never touch a rangefinder. Never. Yeah. I see so many guys let, shot opportunities get by trying to get a perfect range and i'd never touch them so uh it's very very rare yeah that's uh, that's a that's but, a pretty cool uh skill set like you mentioned knowing that you know in order to be successful you gotta find a way to judge yardage because there wasn't the technology back then for it no and the way i the way i did it was you know 
probably would be frowned upon, but it's the best way I thought of back then is, you know, I went down to my uncle's place and he had a couple of hundred head of, you know, Brangus cattle and out in wide open pastures. And I'd slip up on them and say, oh, I probably about 40 and I'd shoot a blunt on him. Yeah, shoot him with a blunt. <laughs> and uh, I got deadly with those things, but <laughs> the the consequence was that of that um, was that the herd became extremely wild, almost like feral cattle when people would get near them. And uh, it it was a bad deal when I got caught. So, um, so you did get in a little got, bit of trouble back in the day, huh? Yeah, he was not happy with me at all. And uh, but I'll tell you what, when I went back the next year, buddy, I was I was deadly. Well, good yeah, for I, you. <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. Oh, that's crazy. All right, so yeah. so then. You know, you go out, you go out there, you experience the West, this new species, this new environment. Um, and it sounds like you fell in love with it to the point where you, you said to yourself again, you know, Hey, I want to do this. Did that take then uh, some kind of priority over whitetail or did you just say, I'm going to be doing this more? No, the, the beauty of this was that it was over before whitetail season started for us. Yeah. So we always started October 15th. Well, I was always home by then. The, 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 you know, the, the conflict would arise with work, um, and it would arise with school. So, you know, I changed my schooling around to where I was taking the fall quarter off instead of the summer like everybody else. And all my buddies were like, man, how can you take off school? It's football season. I'm like, ah, I'm fine. So the fall was kind of my summer. And then the good thing about working like at a hunting and fishing store is that Really, the only excuse for turning up late to work is, you know, there's a cold front coming in. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we had a thing called the cold front, cold front flu. Um, and so, you know, it was, it would, you know, frustrate the heck out of the owners, but they understood they were hunters too. So, um, when it came time for elk season, you know, that was our busiest time in archery. And, you know, they would be super, super frustrated with me. Uh, because I said, Hey, it's, this is open-ended. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving August 30th. I could be back by the 20th or it may be August, I mean, October 5th. It just depends on what's happening, how successful I am. And there were always threats of not having a job when I got back, but it was always there. (laughs) Um, and and I think, you know, back then there weren't a lot of people from Alabama going out West. So I I do think that they almost kind of, I think they kind of liked the idea of having a guy there because people were dying to, to know when I came back that everybody wanted to see the elk horns and everybody wanted elk meat. And, yeah. you know, it, it's just, it's just one of those things. And, um, I, I think that it was kind of a, you know, it was a burden, but it was also a benefit for them as well. Yeah. Um, because I think it, it may have added a little bit of, uh, legitimacy, if you will, or whatever to people coming in to get their bows set up and all, if they've got a guy in there that's shooting elk, you know? Yeah. And then I started bear hunting, and I started moose hunting, and then mule deer, and it just caribou, and it just spun out of control from there. So yeah, so this whole time, as you know, for for me, when I first started, you know, when when I was first married to my wife, it was just whitetail season and turkey season. That was it. You know, uh, three or four days in the spring. Uh, yeah, I'd go do some uh, some shed hunting here and there, but then you know, I pretty much told her before we even got married. I said, listen. The first two weeks in November, 
don't even plan on seeing me though. I, that is my time. I'm going to do that. I had, I had to, I had to say that's, this is my time. It only comes this part of the year. So here, this is what I do. She understood her, her uh, father is a big time bass fisherman, right? And he, he goes all summer up to the North end of the Mississippi river and just fishes all every day. So, so what really from a, what really starts to bother her now is okay, three kids, right? They're all young, but at the same time, I'm also expanding into the Western game, right? So this year I was gone. Um, well, this upcoming year I'll be gone for one week in September, one week in October. I'll be gone for probably two weeks in November, and then again probably in December for a week, uh, as far as trips are concerned. What I mean being married to a hunter who only hunts, you know, a couple times, did you, you know, or hunts close to home and doesn't go on any big trips. Then you start making these big trips. What did your, your girlfriend uh, say, or your fiance by this time or wife, whatever, like, what did, what did she have to say about that? Well, you know, how I pulled off her and getting her in the first place is an absolute miracle. Um, but I've got one of the rare, the rare breeds. It's, um, she understands what makes me tick and it's, you know, it's, she, she, she knows that if I was not doing it, I would not be the person that she would want to be married to and live around. I mean, it's just, it's, it's that bad, but she also puts things in perspective. You know, I've got a, a husband that doesn't, you know, he's, he's not a drinker. He doesn't have any vices. He doesn't gamble. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, chase other women around. He works hard. She's like a cup half full person, you know, and she weighs in all these positives and says, Hey, if the only thing I have to worry about with my husband is that he wants to go hunting all the time, I'll count that as a blessing because I look around and there's not a lot of people that have what we have. And so, she's always kept that in perspective and knows what it means to me. And, um, so it's never really been a problem, but it was, it's funny you bring that up because, you know, we were always together and we were one of the last of our friends to actually get married. Um, and it was so weird to everyone. (laughs) So finally we're leaving like the umpteenth, uh, engagement party for somebody. And, she said, I, you know, I, well, I got to ask you, I mean, you've put, you know, forced me to say, you know, ask this question, but what is, what's the plan here? And I, she said, well, why are we not doing this? And I said, golly, I just, you know how selfish I am when it comes to hunting. And I'm just afraid things are going to change because I'm already watching it happen for my older friends. And she said, you know, that I'm, you know, never going to, change the person you are i mean that's the person that i love i mean i had her engagement ring in the console of my truck for almost a year um so i mean i I knew i was going to do it but i just was so scared that it was going to affect my hunting and um and so when we started planning our wedding she had found somewhere she wanted to do it and it was like september 10th was what was available and she didn't even like literally when they said, these are the dates we have, she's like, Oh, well, that's not going to work. Like she never even came and proposed it to me that we could, <laughs> you know, do that day. So our anniversary is August 24th. 
um, my youngest son's birthday is August 23rd, and my older son's birthday is August 29th. <laughs> so you so had this planned out. <laughs> yeah, one week a year, you know, I have to stay home. And um, so when we first started, of course, we were, you know, later having kids with, with our friends as well because of me and my, my sickness. And so when it got time to start having, you know, children, trying to have children, I, you know, I said, how long is it going to take? You know, what is the, what's the cutoff date if we're not pregnant by this, you know, cause September 1st, we have to be, you know, no birthdays, no. And so we had this cutoff date and I can't remember when it was. I want to say it was in maybe in December or something. And so we hit that date and she wasn't pregnant yet. And she goes, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I guess I'll see you in about four months. And she goes, yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. Tough guy. <laughs> so the next week, she went to the doctor and she was pregnant and the due date was August 30th. And I'm yeah. talking, I was like, man. So three years later, <laughs> when it comes time, we're trying to get pregnant again with Bridger. Um, <laughs> same date hits, not pregnant. And she said, oh, you just thought you were good. Um, and so same thing happens a week or so later. She's pregnant, due dates, August 29th. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it had to be luck, but... Anyway, that's my that's my family, my wife, my life story. It's it's comical um, that people. It's comical to other people to see how we live because um, we're just we're so rare. Yeah, you know, my wife's not chewing nails when I pack up and leave, and she's yeah. not mad. It's you know crap when I get home. I mean, just I don't know. It just it's, it works for us, and so. Gosh, man, I got to be honest with you. I, I feel like we have probably one of the strongest marriages of anybody we know. Um, and I, I totally attribute it to time apart. Yeah. Um, being up under each other all the time is just not, but man, it just, it's not good. Yeah. The so, old distance makes the heart grow fonder uh, mentality. I'm a firm believer in that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so you, you, you you are in a relationship that allows you because I don't want to use the word she lets you go. Um, yeah, we've never used that term. Yeah, ever. Yeah. yeah. So you, that's not how we think. Exactly. So we you have this relationship that allows you to go and and hunt all over the the, the North America or wherever, and yep. so. Now you're starting to get into, you know, you've, you've killed whitetail, you've killed elk, you've killed mule deer, you've killed, uh, I mean, what other species in North America have you killed? Uh, I've, I think I've killed everything except uh, grizzly, the sheep, uh, and uh, mountain goat. Mountain goat, okay. So as you start to get into let's say your your 30s do you have any in this time frame and how old are you now i'm 48 okay you're 48 so from we're covering a huge gap in this question did you while you're out enjoying this do you ever have any moments of clarity or moments of reflection when you're out in the the woods that just blow your blow your mind well I, I do have, uh, I, I, I think I do have the ability to, to minimize 
problems or issues that I've been dealing with um, at home, not at home, but like in life, right. you know, everyday stuff, uh, you know, problems or issues I'm dealing with. I, I feel like when I'm on some of these locations or places or hunts or whatever you want to call it, I, I do feel like I see things a little clearer and I can minimize these things that I think are just so cumbersome and, bur- you know, such a burden that they're really not. And it's just me being a wuss. So I just, you know, I'm ready to, you know, tackle it when I get home and get it out of the way, you know, for better or for worse and move on. So, I mean, I think it puts, it just puts things in perspective, I think is, is, uh, is really what's important. And, you know, and the other thing too is, is that people don't have the opportunity to spend enough time alone anymore. Oh yeah. Um, and, and they don't have enough time to spend alone with their own thoughts and then with any type of outside noise or influence. And so having a lot of that in my life has given me the ability to think through problems, think through, you know, how to bring something to life, whether it's a business or a product or whatever. It's just, it, it just gives you this amazing amount of uninterrupted time to solve problems. Yeah. And, um, and, and literally, I mean, I've, there's been so many times uh, in my life that, that, that the, the light bulb has gone off on something I'm trying to figure out, maybe how to engineer, put together, you know, something. And, I've, you know, and, and deer or whatever will start coming by, and I just won't even get up. I'm just, I stay focused in what I'm, what I'm doing and working through this, this mental picture. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that it would be incredibly beneficial for a lot of people um, it, it would certainly make them, I think, more successful, even if they didn't hunt, if they were just outside more, yeah. um, without the, without the interruptions and the outside noise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, this year when it, it is literally one of my favorite types of feelings I get from the outdoors and it is, uh, you know, I, I backpacked uh, two miles. I think I think I was roughly two miles, and then I had to set up a camp, and then I hiked another mile out uh, to on this ridge to glass mule deer in this big valley. And um, there, there's these moments where you realize that there's nobody within four miles of you or three miles of you. You're the only one out there. Uh, I get I get this feeling when I you know when I go out west to hunt muleys. I've had this feeling when I go and uh, hunt. Um, you know, hunt uh, elk out in the mountains, not so much whitetails because you can hear, like I can hear trucks and cars and tractors and and stuff like that. You know, most of the time I have a a fully functioning cell phone or or whatever with me as well, just in case my wife needs to get a hold of me. But those moments of isolation, when you realize you're alone and what gets me the most is when you realize that in this world, you are very insignificant. You are compared to the universe, the stars and all this stuff, you are so small on this scale that that is almost, I don't know, it, that just gets me when, when I think about that. Yeah. There's very few radars you actually show up in. Yeah. Up on, yeah. Uh, when it comes to, to that and, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's some of the questions you've asked me, uh, and what we're discussing now, 
you know, it kind of leads back to when you're asking me about my 30s. One of the things that changed then uh, as we, you know, were having children and, and becoming, it took me a long time to become an adult. I would say even now I'm probably only halfway there. Um, but, but one of the things that, that, that Jackie did ask of me was, Hey, I want to keep you around. Um, I I worry more now than I ever have because we have these little boys and, and, you know, they need you. And so the only thing that I asked, I'm not asking you to cut back, do anything different other than just stop going by yourself. You know, no, no more, put your backpack on and we don't hear from you for three weeks. It's just, we're, we're past that point in our life. And so I thought, man, this is going to stink. And it did. Uh, when I had to start hunting with other people, it, it stunk. Um, my success rate plummeted. Um, and, but I understood it for sure. But, but this, this past season, not this, I'm sorry, not this fall, but the last fall, uh, I was hunting in New Mexico, um, with a good friend of mine and, and, um, he, uh, he got a ride a day early back to the airport um, in Albuquerque so he could get home. And it would save me having to basically miss the last day of the season. He had killed a bull on the third day and we had a 10 day season to hunt there in New Mexico. So he killed a bull on the third day with his longbow and, and we hunted some more, you know, for me. And, and he had that opportunity to get that ride. Um, and uh, so I drove him out to the trailhead, and actually Kenton and Scott, the founders of First Light, picked him up at the trailhead and drove him to Albuquerque. They were leaving, and uh, so I just got you know that bonus day by myself. And um, and I called Jackie from the trailhead and said, "Hey, you know, Cal's hopping in a car. He's leaving. I'm camping tonight, and then going to hunt tomorrow by myself." And I will get, you know, communication to you, you know, after dark. And so, uh, and she was cool with it, you know. And of course, the next day I shot a bull. Uh, I'm by myself. Um, I'm, you know, half the man I used to be, <laughs> you know, physically. Um, and so there I've got this bull down. I'm by myself. It's just me, my bow, the bull, and the headlamp. And uh, so I, you know, I took my time you know, working that bull up, working a bull up by yourself. It, it, if, if you're smart on how you do it and you actually use, you know, uh, leverage and you use your brain, it's not that hard. Um, is if you do it the right way. So I took my time and, you know, cut the bull up and had him hung and, um, and have my first, my first pack. And I, so I packed back to where I had, you know, the, uh, truck parked. And it was, it was brutal. It was all up the whole way back to the truck. And I thought, man, there's just, there's no way I'm going to do this with three or four trips. Cause I'm not the two trip guy anymore. Three trip, you know, you got by yourself, it's going to take a lot. So, so I went back to camp and, uh, packed everything up, came around, um, drove all about 20 miles around and came into a, a, a different access that was downhill um, uh, of the bull. And I mean, literally it was 20 something mile drive to, 
to get around, but I got there. And so I got back to the bull at probably three o'clock in the morning, maybe. And it was just, it was a, it was great. It was like a, a mile and a quarter, but it was up a, a, a creek bed, you know, in the bottom of a canyon. So yep. it was just that little fine river rock, perfectly flat, walk all the way up. The bull was only like a hundred yards up the hill from the, from the creek bed. And then it was a downhill walk with waves on that flat creek bed all the way out to the truck. So, you know, that decision and doing it like that was, was, um, was the way to do it. And, and it also gave me the ability when I got out to the road, I could call or, you know, text and say, Hey, I'm good. I got a bull down. I'll text you when I get out. So when I got back at three o'clock, there was a bear, a black bear on the carcass. And, um, we hadn't, we hadn't seen hardly any bears the whole time we were there, but this, this bear was on the carcass. And so he didn't want to give it up. I had my meat hanging there. So it was kind of this quick in and out deal and he wasn't happy. And so, but he, I, he was circling, but I couldn't figure out how he was circling me so fast. Like he's just around me constantly, you know? And so I got that one back. I got back up right before daylight. He's still there. Same jazz again pack the next section out. Then I came back for the last haul, uh, right after daylight. And when I got to the carcass, he had dug a hole up against the carcass on the backside of it. And he blew out huffing and puffing. And then I looked to my right and saw the second bear. So there'd been two bears the whole time. I only thought it was one. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was kind of one of those moments. Like this is probably why you shouldn't be doing this stuff by yourself. Yeah. Um, but, I don't know. I probably enjoyed that one day and that one elk and that one pack out. That's probably been one of my most cherished moments in the you know last 10 years because yeah. it was that one opportunity for me to, you know, do it myself again and not be reliant on someone else to help. And, yeah. um, I, it, I don't know. That just, that was the only restriction I've ever had put on me, yeah. uh, with my marriage is just don't, you know, be by yourself and having that one experience was, that was pretty special. So, yeah. but I can tell you, I felt like I had been run over by a truck. Um, I drove for about three hours that next day and I couldn't go anymore. I couldn't keep my eyes open. I stopped and got a hotel room. God, I don't think, I think I slept for 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah. It was rough. Let me, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I hate to, I, you, you have so many stories that I, I want to hear and you'll definitely be back on to, to uh, tell some more stories, but what just keeps popping up in my head is this whole relationship that I have with my wife, you have with your wife and, and the questions that surround it. Like a lot of guys go, man, how do you get so much time to hunt? Or how do you, you know, how do you get this? My wife doesn't do this. Do you, there are, there are times when I feel like I'm selfish because I do get to go on some of these, these trips. Um, and I'm gone for long periods of time. And my wife is at home with three kids who all have three different schedules and I'm not there to help at the house. And I I feel like I'm selfish and I feel almost in a way like I'm taking advantage of her for that. Do you ever feel, do you ever feel that way in, in your relationship? All the time. Yeah. But, but I, but I know that I'm, extremely selfish person when it comes to time for hunting. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 I'm not, I'm not trying to fool myself. Yeah. I, I know that it's, it's a, it's a flaw. Um, 
And if I would say that, you know, most people, if, if you, you know, call this hunting a sickness or a disease, my wife's an enabler. <laughs> so, um, but, 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 you know, she actually helps me put into perspective. So she is, you know, listen, not only do you play really hard, you actually work 10 times harder and you provide for us. And we, you know, I've afforded, you know, got to a place where she, you know, didn't have to work, you know, after our first was born. And, you know, I always make time for the things that she wants to do. She loves to play tennis. She's a big tennis player. Um, so she does that, you know, five, six days a week. So, you know, it, it's a give and take. I mean, you can't, it just can't be one-sided. You can't expect yeah. your wife to work and help pay the bills and support the household and take care of the kids. And then you just go screw off whenever you want to. It, it, that program's not going to work. Yeah. You know, if you, if you've got your, your, your act together and your base is covered and, and, and she's feels like she's secure, um, you know, for that short window in time, you know, she'll, she'll cover you. Yeah. And then when you're home, you got to cover her. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fact. That's uh, and that's one thing that I know that I really try to do is get her the time that she needs, not only away from, you know, she's obviously not going on solo trips out in the back country by herself, but um, time away from the kids uh, and time where me and her can go. Let's say like this year I took her to Colorado. Um, the year before yep. we went uh, somewhere, the year before that we went somewhere. So really trying to, you know, um, get her this fun, uh, you know, these fun moments in her life as well. And, you know, that way she's not just some at home mom that is not enjoying her life while her husband is out gallivanting across the, you know, the plains chasing deer. Sure. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I do the same thing. She and I, when it's not hunting season, we do, we do a lot together. Yeah. Uh, we travel and do things together and take trips and do things with the boys. And, uh, I mean, we, it, we're pretty active people. Yeah. Um, it's just first, and here's the thing. It's, it's not like it used to be. I don't hunt every day anymore. I don't, I don't hunt every weekend during deer season in Alabama anymore. Like I used to, um, I definitely prioritize things. So, and now when I go out West, I'm going for 10 days max. I'm back. Yeah. It's not like when I used to be a, you know, truck gypsy living under my truck going from tag to tag to tag. Yeah. Um, it's different now. So, and usually it's a, you know, one hunt in September, one hunt in October. I do spend about two weeks at our place out in, in Oklahoma in November. Um, because I, I love it out there and I, I, I want to pick out a particular deer and I really want to go heads up with one deer and you can't do that in a short window. No. So, but then December, I really don't do a whole lot. You know, I may, you know, we have to shoot a lot of does at our place. So, you know, I'll bring couples up with their husbands that like to hunt and we'll bring the wives and we'll be at the camp together and go out and shoot does and things like that. My, you know, the wives, my wife doesn't hunt. Some of our friends' wives love, love it. So it's, it's just not the way it used to be. There's, there's a lot more inclusion and there's a lot less being gone, yeah. you know, so, um, and you know, and our, and our youngest son, Bridger is 17. He's autistic. 
And so, but he's pretty high functioning and he's a lot of fun. And, you know, Jackie having him is, is, has just been this blessing because when I'm gone, she's not alone. You know, she doesn't have two, two teenage boys that are bailing on her, you know? So we've got, our oldest son is in college. And so Bridger's always there and they have just this incredible relationship. And, um, so there's, you know, it's not like you're just leaving or sitting at home on the couch. Um, and the boys have always just been very, uh, I don't know. They've, they've, they've been real easy on us. Even with Bridger's challenges, they've been very self-reliant and, you know, never giving us any trouble. And so it's not like I'm off and our boys are getting in trouble and she's handling it by herself. They've just not put us in that situation. So I've gotten really lucky, you know, with that regard, but I'll tell you this, if anything ever did happen to me, uh, if, if I would have not made it out from under that building, I can tell you right now, I, there's, there'll be a hundred guys that will literally run slap over their wife running to try to get Jackie. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, I'm telling, I always told her, you got to worry about if anything happens to me, they're going to be lined up down the road. Uh, you know, it's just, she's just one of those special, special girls, you know, so, yeah. um, I got super lucky there. Awesome. Well, I tell you what, man, we've, uh, we've talked a, a, a lot today about, you know, a couple things, but I need to get you back on, uh, on another episode where we can get into the nitty gritty about hunting stories and, and stuff like that, because I know you have a ton of them. Um, and, and selfishly, I want to ask you questions about elk hunting and mule deer hunting. Those are two things that I have not found success yet in, and I know that you have. So, uh, I want to, I want to dig into that, but, uh, Man, Brian, I appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, some intriguing conversation, and uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on. Sounds good. I, my buddy Scott, uh, that took me to Africa the year I got hurt, he's standing at the other end of the porch for me, tapping his watch. It's like, it's time to go, buddy. The range has stopped. They're fixing to move. So we're fixing to go get in a tree. And there you have it. Another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Brian, man. Really enjoy talking with that dude. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to hop on and listen. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Vortex Optics, Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands, The Average Conservationist Apparel, Ozonics Scent Elimination, and Wasp Broadheads. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast because when you support them, they continue to support me and then it's a full circle and you guys get all this great content. So other than that, hopefully everybody has a good weekend, a great next week, a good life, stay positive, send good vibes out into the universe, get good vibes back, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.